Welcome to Understanding the Law. Your host for the program is Peter Lamont. Mr. Lamont is a business and personal law attorney and the principal of the law offices of Peter J. Lamont. The firm has offices in New Jersey, New York, Colorado, Puerto Rico, and affiliated offices throughout the country. Understanding the Law is a weekly radio broadcast discussing a variety of legal topics that affect our listeners. Please note that this broadcast does not constitute legal advice and does not create an attorney-client relationship with any of our listeners. As always, we welcome calls from our listeners. If you wish to discuss any of today's topics, please call our switchboard at 347-855-8831. And now, your host, Peter Lamont. Well, thanks for joining me. This is episode 43 Uh, Today, we are going to go back to something that we haven't done in a while. We're going to uh, address some current issues, and then we're going to answer some questions that have been received by us over the past few weeks. Uh, Lately, we've had a lot of interesting guests on the show, and so we've had a limited opportunity to go through some of the older segments that we uh, we usually had uh, about news and, and questions and answers. So... Um, most of the listeners find these sessions helpful. If you have questions that you want to ask today, if you want to talk about a topic that I'm going to be discussing, then uh, give us a call, the switchboard, 347-855-8831, and I will answer your questions on the air. We can discuss the topics. So before we get into today's show, I want to um, talk about something that um, I'm excited about. We have a brand-new app available exclusively on iTunes, and it's an app that allows you to ask your legal questions directly on your phone or iPad, communicate with an attorney at our office, and receive an answer to your legal question within a very short period of time. So it's a, uh, it's a brand new idea, it's a brand new concept, it's extremely unique. There is not another app out in the market right now that allows you to Um, have direct communication with an attorney to ask your questions, so we're very excited about this. The app also has the ability to um, allow viewers to learn about statute of limitations, to check the statute of limitations. Right now it's in New York and New Jersey, but we will be expanding that over the next few months. And you have access to our full library of videos, which include our new how-to segments, Uh, If you go to our YouTube channel, they're called Practical Law, and they get into a lot of the elements of pro se representation. So in other words, when you represent yourself, when you don't need an attorney, you know, and I I guarantee you it's like blasphemy to say that you don't need an attorney for everything, and I'm sure that there's attorneys out there that are screaming, what is this guy doing? Does he not want us to make any money? There's a difference between being fair with people, being fair with clients, and, you know, and, and maintaining a business and making money. There are things, quite frankly, that you don't need an attorney for or that are too expensive for you to hire an attorney. So if you take a look at the app, you'll be able to access all of those videos. But separately, if you go to our YouTube channel, um, it's, it's a really nicely laid out and formatted channel that has basic informational videos concerning areas of law that you might have questions about. But under our new segments that have been introduced, we do a question and answer session. So we'll take a lot of the questions that have come in and we will address them on the air. 
um, or on the video, I should say. We also have the practical law session I mentioned a few minutes ago. And our most recent post is a walkthrough of how to complete a special civil summons and complaint. So it's an on-screen video demonstration of uh, myself going through the summons and complaint. It explains when you can use it, when you can't use it, for what matters, and how to fill it out. So, you know, we get calls all the time, and I'm sure that other attorneys do as well, where you have a case, and it's a valid case, but the dollar amount that you're seeking to recover is $3,000, $2,000, you know, lower amounts, $500. And while you don't necessarily want to go it alone, you also can't afford to pay an attorney because it makes no financial sense to pay an attorney um, you know, $1,000 to try to recover 500 So there are times when you can absolutely do things on your own, and that's the purpose of that new segment. So I encourage you to download the app from the uh, iTunes store. I encourage you also to go onto our YouTube channel and subscribe. Um, you know, you're going to just get a lot of information. A lot of the questions that we receive on a daily basis are being answered on the YouTube channel, so I encourage you to do that. Uh, so again, check out the app, and we're really excited about it. I think it'll be beneficial to a lot of people. Um, you know, we, we hear all the time from people that, hey, I just have a quick legal question, but I can't find somebody to answer it, and I don't want to pay to go see a lawyer, or uh, you know, I don't have time for a consultation. Can't you just answer the question? Well, now you have that ability. Submit your question, and an attorney will answer it for you. So. I hope to see the um, downloads moving along relatively quickly. The app was just launched uh, this morning, so let's see what we can do to get the app out there. All right, now, Monday of this past week, we had a guest, Ken Wolski, on the show, and Ken is uh, involved with uh, legislation to try to Pass legalization of recreational marijuana as well as medical marijuana in the state of New Jersey. And he works with a coalition uh, that promotes that cause. We had him on for an hour. We talked about um, some of the rules concerning legalization. We talked about the reasons why. And clearly, uh, he's a big proponent of it, both from the medical side, because he says that there are, are major health benefits, and from the recreational use side. We talked briefly about some of the figures that have come in from Colorado from their revenue stream that are derived out of the sale of marijuana and the, uh, you know, it used to be called paraphernalia, but I guess now we're going to call it accessories that come along with uh, the use of recreational marijuana. So a bong was once paraphernalia, and now it's a cool accessory. Um, well, in any event, I want to talk a little bit more in depth about this because after the show aired, uh, I think that every marijuana grower in South America followed us on Twitter and we received a ton of questions concerning marijuana and its legalization. We received calls from businesses who are um, growing marijuana and they want to know what you know uh, they can do to promote their business. So it was quite an interesting week, and I want to talk a little bit about marijuana in New Jersey. So it seems like marijuana is a hot topic. We can say marijuana, and everybody's uh, you know very excited about it. So let me start off by saying 
that my discussions on marijuana are, are sort of, um, you know, there's no real guideline for me to discuss it because I've never used marijuana. So I don't know what, you know, the excitement is, number one. I don't know what the benefits are from a personal experience standpoint. I understand what I've read and I understand what people uh, tell me and why it's good, and I've heard all the arguments, but I cannot say that I have had any experience with it. So for me, I view marijuana as what the federal government calls it, a class one um, drug, narcotic, and I don't necessarily see that there's a benefit, not for recreational use for sure, in my opinion. Uh, medical use, I'm, I'm undetermined. I mean, I've seen a lot of, of things that are out there concerning the benefits of medical marijuana for patients who are terminally ill, and that's right now what the statute in New Jersey says. You're allowed to have medical marijuana in New Jersey if you qualify under certain um, you know, standards, and they primarily involve life-threatening or terminal conditions or um, other conditions that are so debilitating that it's preventing you from living what some would call a normal life. So, you know, I, I'm, I'm torn on the medical marijuana issue. I think that perhaps it's acceptable if it's controlled, but where a lot of people are concerned, and I just listened to an interview with some psychiatrists over at uh, Columbia Presbyterian talking about the use of medical marijuana. Their concern is that right now statistics show 5% of people who are accessing or have permission to access medical marijuana are using it for its prescribed purpose. But that means that 95% of the people who are getting it are using it for something else. So I'm not suggesting that they're selling it, but are they using it for, you know, pure recreational versus, hey, I, I, I'm in pain, I need to take it. I, I don't know. But what the uh, physicians over at Columbia Presbyterian um, were sort of bringing up is the idea of how are we going to control it if it's easier to get it even from a medical standpoint? What about youth? What about teens? What about adolescents who are going to be able to access it? You know, and the counter-argument to that is, well, they're already accessing it. So it's the big deal. They already can get it. You know, they can get heroin. They can get marijuana. You know, and that, that's a whole other issue, the heroin crisis in New Jersey. But, you know, people are looking at this and saying, what's the big deal? People are getting it anyway. People are doing it anyway. It's got health benefits to it. People have been using it for years. But that doesn't answer the question of, well, you know, it's it's categorized as a drug for a reason. It has effects, and, and even Ken Wolski said that, you know, some people have adverse reactions to marijuana. And you can say that people have adverse reactions to aspirin. But, you know, the idea of, of having medical marijuana and, and not knowing whether or not the person, or any marijuana, I should say, not knowing whether or not the person is going to uh, tolerate it, that's a risky situation that you're entering into. So, for, for example, you know, if you go to Colorado because you can get recreational marijuana, you've never used it before, you have no idea how you're going to react to it, and as far as I know, 
there's no big warning sign on it like there are on prescription medications that say, do not drive or operate heavy machinery until you know how this medication affects you. So you go out, you score yourself some marijuana in Colorado, you jump into your car, and you happen to have an adverse reaction, paranoia, some other sort of issue, and now you're killing people or yourself because you're driving your car. And the answer is, well, you shouldn't be doing that. Well, that's great, but you know we're facilitating the... Uh, ability of people to now have access to it. And I don't think that, well, that law is, is progressing quite rapidly throughout the country. What about the laws concerning regulation of it? You know, yes, it's great that as a state, Colorado is rolling in dough because of weed. But what about regulation? And we see this when there are new developments in, in, in the law. It doesn't matter if it's social media that's developing, if it's gay rights that are developing. Uh, we see untested waters. We see a lot of litigation that arises out of these un, uh, untested uh, areas of law. So I can guarantee that just as quickly as the laws are developing with respect to marijuana and the petitions are coming in to legalize it you know, throughout the country, um, you're going to see in the not-too-distant future, lawsuits arising out of uh, marijuana usage. And I raised this issue with Ken Walski on Monday. You know, bartenders, for example, they have an obligation, they have a duty to make certain that they don't serve someone who seems to appear, you know, visibly intoxicated, who've reached their limit. It's a bartender's obligation to cut them off. And if they don't, they can be held liable if that individual gets in a car and injures himself or injures someone else. Now, what's the difference between that and someone who owns a retail marijuana store? And they're selling a product. They have no idea whether or not this individual is going to have an adverse reaction or not. They have no idea whether this individual is already intoxicated, whether this individual has... Uh, had a drug habit in the past. You know, there's all these unknown questions, and they sell them the, the marijuana, and something happens. That's not so far-fetched. So is there going to be liability now on the seller? What about insurance? Are we going to come up with new insurance policies that now can protect people who sell marijuana? You know, a marijuana seller's policy? There's a lot of issues that are out there that people are I think, glossing over because of this idea of marijuana. And, it's, it, you know, you'd think it was a McDonald's cheeseburger. I, I don't really understand the whole idea of, hey, marijuana is legal, let's all go do it. I don't understand it. But, again, that could be because I've never used it. Um, now, I want to talk about some of the bills that are pending in New Jersey. Uh, one of them, obviously, is the one in January, uh, Scutari, had proposed a bill legalizing marijuana across the board. And uh, one of the platforms that he's uh, using to support this idea of legalization is the revenue stream. Look at Colorado. Look how much money they made. So we can do it too. And people are using it anyway. And it's not that bad for you. So why not do it? And that bill is, is still pending. But um, at the same time, there has been another piece of legislation. Uh, this is a bipartisan bill that was proposed just this month, or actually March, we're in April already, that suggests that there are um, 
limitations placed upon legalization of marijuana. So the Scutari bill, which is obviously a much broader bill, let's make it legal for everyone, um, there's hesitation. And of course, you've got Governor Christie, who is going to oppose this bill, uh, regardless, as you know, he's said many times, that he's opposed to the legalization of recreational marijuana. Uh, but this new bill sort of seeks to soften and, and kind of introduce the idea um, in, in a way that's a little more palatable than the Scutari bill. This one wants to have a limitation on uh, criminality of possession. And what it proposes essentially is that certain levels of marijuana, and I don't mean levels in the system, but uh, you know, certain amounts of marijuana be excluded from uh, criminal statutes. So they want to amend the criminal statute, and this bill would propose that the possession of more than 28.35 grams, that's one ounce, to 50 grams is a disorderly person's offense. And then below the 28, below the one ounce, you've got no problem. Right now, the statute says that the possession of any amount up to 50 grams is a disorderly person's offense carrying a possible one-year jail sentence or fine up to $1,000 or both. So this new bill seeks to give you leeway under an ounce and then limit your liability with respect to um, you know, a disorderly person's offense if, if you're between the one ounce and the 50 grams. They want to decriminalize being under the influence of marijuana, as well as the possession of paraphernalia or, in my world, accessories. Um, and, and here's why, and this is, this is, I think this is interesting. So prosecutors who are behind this, they want to make sure that public intoxication remains prohibited, especially behind the wheels but the rationale behind this is, is, is this. Let me read you this quote. If you talk to a lot of people in law enforcement, they'll tell you that police have better things to do with their time. Just as a prosecutor, 90% of my drug cases are marijuana and 90% of them are the joint in the ashtray. It's really a prosecutorial headache. Okay, so is this because everybody's lazy and they're tired of writing up complaints because of marijuana possession? Is that why we're doing this? Is that a real good idea? You know, I'm not saying, again, that uh, this isn't going to happen or it shouldn't happen. Uh, I'm undecided. I really, I think that I'm probably more opposed to to the legalization of recreational marijuana. I think I understand more the medical side of it, but is the reason to decriminalize it because we have better things to do with our time? I mean, isn't that what we as taxpayers are? We're paying them, right? They're not offering their time for free on marijuana cases. So I don't understand that rationale. What, what better things do you have to do? And, of course, someone's going to say, well, we've got you know, serious drugs. We've got the heroin epidemic. And we can't control the heroin epidemic because we're too busy dealing with marijuana. So I don't know if that's where this is going, but it certainly is uh, something to think about. So this new bill 
would sort of soften the intensity of the Scutari bill, which is just an all-out, make it legal, and sort of kind of get everybody used to the idea of it. You know, get everybody used to the idea of, hey, let's smoke and possess more than an ounce because then we're okay, and then we can eventually move on to the Scutari bill and see where that goes. Now, from a business standpoint, aside from the moral dilemma, right, from a business standpoint, businesses in general stand to make a killing because, you know, you could have everything, you know, endorsed. Look, you get the Grateful Dead to endorse your new medical or non-medical recreational marijuana accessories. You could accessorize with the Grateful Dead bong. You know, you could just go crazy and you could make a ton of money. And that's what's going on in Colorado. And I think that a lot of business owners, uh, entrepreneurs seeing hey, listen, I might not particularly be fond of the marijuana industry, but I am fond of making a lot of money. So, uh, you know, if, if the Duck Dynasty people can grow long beards and uh, go on a show and look silly and sell, um, you know, duck calls and make a killing doing it, and that's okay. And I say that because at least two of the guys were not the – depicted redneck hillbillies. You know, these guys live in mansions and there's pictures of them on the internet without beards when they were, let's just call them, you know, mainstream guys. So, you know, they're doing it because it's money and I don't begrudge them that. Good for them. You know, they probably make excellent duck calls. I just see that as, you know, a business tactic, a marketing tactic. And that's great because, you know, we as business attorneys, we encourage that with our clients. We want to see some... Uh, unique elements to the marketing. But, you know, this idea of let's do whatever we can to make money, which is my Duck Dynasty comparison, uh, is also going to hold true for people who are entrepreneurs who want to find a business who might not necessarily have a special niche. You know, we talked to Lori Cheek last week, and she's always had this, this idea in her head of doing something, but then found what she was looking for and is obviously very determined to push Cheek, uh, the, the dating um, app and the dating service that's being developed. She's interested in that, you know, and that's where her focus is. But a lot of times entrepreneurs are searching for something, and they typically lean towards things that are going to give them money more quickly. And why not jump on the marijuana paraphernalia slash accessory bandwagon, right? Gone are the days when you go up to Lake George, New York, and you walk into one of the stores, and then the way back, they've got the neon glowing room with the black lights, and you can find some, you know, quote-unquote pipes, and, uh, you know, you're all thrilled because you feel like you just pulled one over on somebody. Now you're going to be able to walk into stores, and you're going to be able to get whatever you want. So, very interesting times and I'd like to hear what people do think about the idea of recreational versus medical marijuana and what you think about the potential for liability both on people selling it, the people using it, people who know that people are using it, um, the impact on kids. So I'm very interested in that. So keep the Facebook comments coming. You can also post on our YouTube channel or on Twitter, and we'll, you know, obviously look at your question, look at your comment, and we'll discuss it. Uh, one last thing I want to point out about that, uh, we talked with Ken about the idea of employer 
liability with respect to terminating employees who are using marijuana. So even in Colorado, where it's legal, both recreational and for medical purposes, there still is the ability for employers to terminate employees who are using drugs. If you violate the employer's anti-drug policy, then you can be terminated. And Ken didn't agree with me on that issue. Uh, he thought it was just you know inherently unfair, and that's fine. But I, I see it from a different standpoint because I don't think that an employer should be made – uh, to keep someone who's violating their terms of employment. Now, I don't want somebody telling me, hey, I have to keep an attorney who he's fine while he's at work, but he's stoned all night long. I don't think I'd want that attorney working for me. I mean, unless I decided to start representing medical and, and recreational marijuana companies, or if I was myself developing the Grateful Dead bong. But in general, I don't think that I would want uh, want that attorney to work for me. You know, it does a lot. We talked months ago about social media and the impact of what you post on your social media pages, how it impacts your employer. You know, for better or for worse, and forgetting the legality of it for a second, if I have an attorney who is working for me and posts on their Facebook page, hey, you know, look at the doobie I just rolled, I would have a problem with that because that, that – has a negative um, connotation. It, it, it says that, hey, we imply, we, we employ stoners. So I don't know if I want to hire that attorney because I'm not sure if he'll be high that day. So I think it's unfair to force an employer to keep an employee simply because marijuana is legal in Colorado. All right. Now that I'm done with that rant, let's move on to uh, a case that just came out yesterday. Uh, this is pretty interesting. So it's in New Jersey, and it's under the workers' compensation law. So there's a guy who's employed for a company, and the company leases parking spaces in a parking garage across the street from their office. And so they said to this individual, you know, you can park here for free. We rent these spaces. It's okay. Go, you know, go park there. And he does. And when he's crossing the street, he gets hurt. I think he gets hit by a car or steps into a pothole. Let's see what it is here. I'm just taking a quick look. Looks like he was struck by a car. Okay, it was a, it was a she, actually. So she's struck by a car. And she puts a claim in for workers' compensation because she was injured on the job. And this went up to the Supreme Court and was just decided that a worker hit by a car crossing the street from her office, from the garage to the office, is not injured on the job. Now, let's take a step back. Uh, workers' comp cases are typically dealt with on a fact-specific case-by-case basis to determine whether or not you qualify for being at work. So here you, you have an employer controlling parking spaces, but are they? No, they're just leasing them. They're not controlling them. They also didn't control which path the employer was to work. They didn't say, you know, walk 15 steps up and then, you know, across the street in this direction. Go park in the parking spot and then cross the street. So the Supreme Court ruled, and it's different than some other rulings, uh, but again, like I said, it's fact-specific that in this case, 
The fact that the employer leased the parking spaces does not make them liable under workers' compensation statutes because the employer, the, the employee was not at work. She was walking in the street. She didn't have to park in that parking lot. She could have parked wherever she wanted. She chose to. It was available to her. But that does not constitute being at work. So I actually think this is a, a, a good decision um, because at what point, you know, do you need to start limiting some of these laws where people don't pay attention? And I'm not saying that this individual didn't, but, you know, I've seen it before. You know, people aren't paying attention and uh, they fall over something. They get hit by a car and then they want to sue their employer and they, hey, but workers' comp. So I think this is a good ruling. I think it's an interesting ruling. I think it's a good one. Uh, it's, uh, if, if you want to look it up, it's Hirsch versus the County of Morris. So that's uh, it's a pretty good case. Okay, the next thing I want to move into and talk about is um, bullying. I think about a year ago, probably last September, we ran a series on bullying and negligence in the schools and the obligation of teachers to keep students safe while in school. We also talked about some of the various anti-bullying laws that are out there, including New Jersey's anti-bullying law. Well, now there's a, uh, a new case. It was uh, decided in March, and it basically says that a school district who is sued because of bullying can bring contribution claims against the students accused of harassing the plaintiff. Now, this is a superior court case. It's not an appellate division case. It's not a Supreme Court case, which means that, you know, it could be overturned. Um, this happens all the time. But I, based upon what I've read and, and what I uh, have, have heard people talking about, I think that people are generally happy with the results of this case. This is a groundbreaking decision uh, that says, hey, now you can go under New Jersey's contributory negligence statute, your, um, you know, your contribution statute, and say, hey, we're on the hook for this, but you are also at fault up to a percentage, and therefore we can seek contribution from you. Now, in the specific case, there was a 17-year-old plaintiff who was bullied at school uh, primarily due to um, his, his being overweight and perceived homosexuality. And so the kid was bullied. And, you know, the case will show that the, the parents and the student, they went to the school district, they went to the school board, and nothing happened. And so they have a viable anti-bullying claim. And they file it, and the school decides, hey, wait a minute, yeah, we didn't do what we were supposed to do, but... The bullier hadn't done this, well, we wouldn't be on the hook either. So they filed a suit for contribution against the bullier, against the bully, and this case says that they can do it. So, you know, I don't know what you guys think about that, but I do think with respect to bullying, because it really is something that is now, it's so... Um, understood, if you will. Back when I was younger, bullying was something completely different. Nowadays, there's a definition, right? You can you can um, you can you can make a tangible 
explanation of what bullying is. There's all sorts of laws in many jurisdictions. So I think that to say that people don't know what it is is just completely uh, nonsense. We all know what it is now. We can define it. And I think that kids need to learn that they cannot bully other kids. I think that it's, it's such a terrible thing in this day and age when a kid will bully another just because they can, right? I mean, look, we all know who the, the, the bullied kids generally are. They're the eccentric kids. They're the kids that are more shy and introverted. They're the kids that don't fit the mold, that don't fit in. You know, and, and I think that holding the bullier responsible, and now, again, we've got to clarify this because I don't think that you can go say, hey, you know, this, this third grader bullied my kid and uh, the school district now can sue them for contribution, right? I think that's a little excessive. But I think that, especially in, in high school and 6th, 7th, and 8th grade, I think it's absolutely fair for a school district to be able to seek contribution from the bully. And I don't think it's, it's a good idea because I don't want to see the school boards and their insurance companies have to put out too much money. That's nonsense. I don't care about that. But what I do care about is teaching a lesson to the kids that are doing the bullying. Right? It's not acceptable. And you can say it's not acceptable till you're blue in the face. You can have anti-bullying days. You can wear anti-bullying T-shirts. You can show videos. But there are always those parents out there that say, not my Johnny. He didn't do it. You, your kid incited him. Your kid did this. Not my Johnny. Right? Good old my Johnny has been around for hundreds of years. And he's not going away. So these parents that believe that their kids did nothing wrong, well, they don't care that there was a bullying seminar in school. They don't care that they watched the video. But you know what they will care about? They will care when they either have to contact their homeowner's insurance and say, hey, here's a claim, or they have to put money up. That they'll care about. And then maybe they'll have a stronger desire to sort of speak to their kids and prevent some of these things from happening. Now, I'm generalizing. Not every parent has a bully in the family and, and are aware of this kid's actions, right? Sometimes kids just do things and parents don't know, and parents really couldn't have known. But other times, they can know. Not too long ago, we talked about on the air a story of a case that I had where a mother was a single mom. She This is out of New Jersey. She was working full-time, and her son was in a neo-Nazi cult. And he ultimately lured a girl out in the woods with his, his friends, and they beat her senseless, and, and you know, um, she's running around the town naked and bleeding, and it was a really, really terrible, terrible case. But, but the mother was being sued, and her defense was, well, how did I know? How could I have known? You know, negligent... Uh, supervision was the claim. Well, how should you have known? The kid had Adolf Hitler posters and a giant swastika in his room. What do you think he was doing? Writing a history paper? Of course you should have known. And there are parents out there 
who received complaints from teachers. Hey, listen, your son was a little aggressive. Your son is this. We're getting some complaints. And you think they go home and they say, wow, we, maybe we should talk to, to our son. No, little Johnny, not him. So I think that this is a good idea. Again, not for the schools, because most schools are insured for things like this. They all pay into, well, they're either self-insured or they pay into a joint insurance fund. And so, you know, who's, who's really footing the bill? The taxpayers, right? We are. We are when the school can't stop bullying or can't do something once they're aware of an incident, we pay it. So I think it's a good idea. Um, you know, there are some comments that we received on this. Um, this one says, I'm, I'm all for bullying prevention, but a lawsuit against parents is certainly no way of going about it. Put bullies in separate classes. Cut them off from sports and other school activities. Okay, now you open yourself up to a civil rights claim. Hey, my kid's in the bully class. Okay, all the bullies, you're in this class. So that, that doesn't work. Here's one. This is interesting. I'd still prefer caning. First the bully, then the parents. Well, that's more along the lines of what I'm talking about, just not that extreme. Um, but here's another interesting comment. Suing the parents seems to me like a great way to get parents reinvolved in the discipline. I believe there's a major issue today with parents not parenting. When their kids start costing them money because of their stupidity, maybe the parents will actually start getting involved. Now, I would phrase it in a different way, but I agree with this comment. This is what I'm saying. You know, parents need to take responsibility for their kids. It doesn't matter if you're in private school or public school. You know, I see it. I see it in, in my children's schools where you just have those parents that just don't want to think that their kid ever did anything wrong. So I think it's a good decision. And I think that, um, you know, I'd like to see that sort of held up by the appellate division and see what sort of impact that has, not only in New Jersey, but nationwide, and if it will help prevent bullying, because all of the bullying education that's out there right now, and there is a significant level of it, I'm not convinced that it's actually working. Sure, 15 years ago versus now, I will, you know, bet you that uh, incidents of bullying have decreased, but not significantly. All right, so I want to touch on another topic that um, we briefly discussed in, um, in our legal news section, uh, and this involved a woman in Red Bank who was pulling into a parking spot at a shopping center in Red Bank. And while she was pulling into the spot, another woman got aggravated and thought that she was stealing her parking spot. So they both jump out of the car, and they both start uh, yelling at each other and arguing about whose spot it is, right? And the woman who thought that the first woman stole the spot then bites the woman, bites her hand, bites her fingers. She bit her fingers so hard that she almost severed them completely. So the woman who was bitten ends up going to the hospital and uh, needs all sorts of treatment, tetanus shots. You know, they had to uh, you know, fix her dangling finger. So, you know, it, it, it's 
just kind of disturbing to think that a parking spot means so much to somebody that they're going to bite your finger off because of it. Well, police have offered now a $5,000 reward if anyone can identify the biter. So if you're looking to make some quick money, just find out who bit the woman in Red Bank, and uh, and you'll be entitled to $5,000. So, But on a serious note, I mean, really, if, if somebody does know, it certainly it behooves you to do the right thing and to uh, to go to the police and let them know, because that's that's crazy. Now, speaking of biting people and eating fingers, while this might not be necessarily a legal topic, I do find it extremely interesting. So if you live in New Jersey and there is a zombie apocalypse, survival rankings have come in that suggest that we're all going to die. Um, This is from a real estate blog, and it seemed to be a listing of zombie apocalypse survival ratings, and it's determined based upon a variety of factors. So the Garden State, right here in New Jersey, ranked 37 out of 100 in military personnel, very low on military veterans, gets better, um, very low on martial arts, survival skills were only a 50, knowledge of zombies is only a 50, gun owners are a 50, obesity, I guess the garden state is filled with people that are overweight, and so all of us overweight people, we're definitely zombie food, um, and so we have a very, very good chance that we're all going to be zombies. As a matter of fact, the report says if the zombie apocalypse began today and you live in New Jersey, the odds are 100% that you've already been bitten and have become a zombie. So that's very uh, disturbing news. It's bringing me down. But if you are looking to go to a place where maybe you have a better chance of survival, uh, they are saying Alaska, Wyoming, and Colorado. Well, Colorado, everyone is high, so they're not going to know that the zombie apocalypse is coming. I don't know that that's necessarily accurate, but we'll have to see where that goes. All right. Um, next thing I want to talk about is upskirting. All right. Upskirting, for those of you who don't know, is a process where a pervert will stick a camera up a woman's skirt to take a peek at what's up there. Um, This was sort of brought to the forefront a month or so ago in Massachusetts when Massachusetts' highest court finally decided, after a lower court ruling that said it was legal because it didn't qualify under the strict reading of their statute, um, but the, the you know high court ultimately said that it is illegal, which is what it should be. Um, but there was a lot of discussion about that because for about a week, upskirting was legal, maybe less than a week. So now a New Jersey senator, Senator Tom Keene, uh, has introduced a bill seeking to criminalize the act of secretly photograph- uh, photographing 
was going to say photographizing, but that is not a word, uh, photographing people, particularly women, under their clothes known as upskirting. So this makes it, you know, if this bill is passed, which it should be, I don't, I don't see any opposition to it, um, it will make it illegal. But this is interesting because this proves a point separate from the upskirting issue that when there is an issue of national attention like the Massachusetts case, it spreads like wildfire throughout the rest of the country. And while it might take time, one to four years, it spreads. So, you know, New Jersey and, and upskirting has not been in the news. There's not been a big incident um, where you've seen something in the news about somebody being sued. I mean, yeah, it's, it's here, and you see it on the local level, and prosecutors talk about it, but it's not something that has a lot of media attention like the issue in Massachusetts. And the only reason that did, quite frankly, was because the lower court decided it was okay. But now you'll see the spread of this throughout the country, and it will be illegal in every state. But this is how these things spread, and this, it goes back to, to gay rights, right? We talked about it earlier this year, um, maybe it was last year, where we were showing you that it looks as though, you know, within a year or so, every state in the country will have some, um, you know, gay rights, uh, gay marriage bill or law on the books, the same with uh, bullying, the same with all of these laws. So it just is a nice way of, of sort of seeing the progression and how these things will slowly start to make their way across the country. Sometimes they start in California, sometimes they start here, but eventually they spread. There always will be holdout states, um, but part that's how it spreads. Now, speaking of a holdout state, this is interesting. This is the Mississippi governor who intends on signing an anti-gay bill into law. So the governor of Mississippi says he'll sign a religious freedom bill approved by state lawmakers over the objections of opponents who say it could be used as an excuse to refuse services to gays and minority minorities. The Religious Freedom Restoration Act passed 79 to 43 in the state house of representatives and 37 to 14 in the senate on tuesday and it protects residents from state laws or local ordinances that violate their right to practice their faith uh so this is certainly interesting um because what it essentially results in is an an anti-gay Bill. It gives individual store owners, individuals, businesses to say, hey, we think that it's uh, a sin to be gay, and therefore we don't want you working with us. So there's always going to be states like this, and it'll just be a matter of time. But, you know, this is going to bring a lot of criticism. Uh, I think the ACLU is already involved. So, you know, it's something that, yeah, it's out there, and the guy's got a lot of publicity, but is it going to stay? Probably not. I think that the spread will just, just like the, vi- the virus that will spread in the zombie apocalypse, I think that this, will, this you know, idea of, of gay rights and equality will spread just like it did in the civil rights movement. And look at how long it took 
for the civil rights movement to really spread to the point where, you know, we're, we're, are we are where we are today. So, but it's, like I said, it's a nice illustration to show you how the laws develop and how they move throughout the country. Uh, I also want to mention the, uh, the obvious Fort Hood shooting spree. Um, you know, that's a, a tragedy, and it's something that, uh, you know, I think is relevant to some of the discussions that we have and to one of our, our regular sponsors on the show, Trigger Smart. Uh, Trigger Smart's a company that makes handguns that have um, chips in them that prevent the use uh, by individuals who are not authorized to use it. Now, that's not the case in Fort Hood, but uh, it, it certainly, again, brings the idea of guns to the forefront. And, you know, you can make the same arguments that it's the people, not the guns. Um, you know, but it, it certainly is a tragedy, so we, uh, we hate to see that happen. All right, next we've got John Marshall Law School has had a racial discrimination and retaliation case filed against them because two former professors believe that they had been discriminated against. Uh, this case is actually moving along, and uh, the former professors have defeated a motion for summary judgment. Um, now, why am I telling you this? It's not all that interesting. What's what is interesting about it is um, that the dean of the law school is quoted as saying, of course, you're always disappointed when you don't win your motion. We had hoped it would go the other way, but it's summary judgment. It will be a fair and interesting trial. Why I want to tell you about this is because this guy, Dean Richardson Lyon, or Lynn, sorry, he fully believes that he's innocent, that the, the, the school has done nothing wrong. And I don't know one way or the other, whether he is or isn't. I don't know the facts of the case. But what I do know is this. People call and often say when they hire a lawyer, this isn't fair. It's not fair. Well, I hate to break it to you, but the law is not fair. It's not meant to be fair. It's meant to be just. There's no real justice. You know, a lawsuit involves facts and testimony and evidence and a lawyer who will present those facts in a way to convince a jury or a judge your facts and your interpretation of those events is the accurate one. That's how things like O.J. Simpson happen. Is there justice? Is there fairness? No, but it's the best we can do. And it is. I mean, I'm not criticizing the legal system. I think it's the best we can do. But you have to understand that things are not fair. Now, this dean at John Marshall Law School, obviously familiar with the law, hopefully because he teaches it, you know, he understands that, yeah, we're disappointed, and, you know, it'll, it'll be a good trial. I would like to see people develop a better understanding of the law and a better understanding of how things that are unfair are not always the result of a bad lawyer, a bad judge, a bad jury. 
you know, we, we see clients often say things like, well, this isn't fair. This happened to me. You know, especially we see it a lot in, um, was, well, I'll tell you specifically, I was reviewing a case involving an insurance policy and uh, damages that were sought by the insured under the policy. Now, the way insurance works, you get a copy of your policy when you pay your, your premium, when you sign up, you get a copy every year. Who reads it? Aside from lawyers, probably nobody. Well, this individual, in this case that I was reviewing, uh, the damages that the individual is seeking are excluded under the policy. And there's specific provisions in the policy that say this, this, and this are excluded. And it's not as though the individual didn't understand that because the individual wrote a letter to the insurance company saying this, this, and this happened and I should be reimbursed for it. But he used the exact terminology that is covered in the exclusion section of the policy. So a legal analysis of that issue is, well, there's an exclusion. Well, we can try to argue around the exclusion, but I can't guarantee that you even have a 50% likelihood of success, coupled with the fact that you used the exact same terminology that is listed in the exclusion. And you know what we get? Well, that's not fair. No, it's not fair, but it's in the policy. It's what you signed. None of it's fair. You know, it's not fair that clients don't want to pay lawyers because they think that lawyers are cheap and lawyers don't need it. That's not fair, but it is what it is. Right? You don't see people running around crying about it. So it's, it's nice to see a defendant in a, in a lawsuit like uh, the John Marshall Law School have a rational understanding of, hey, we're disappointed. But you know what it doesn't say in this article? It's not fair. So I think that this is an interesting thing. And you know what? I'm certainly not uh, in any way making light or, or fun of clients who believe that it's not fair. Because you know what? Quite honestly, there are a lot of times when things are not fair. It clearly is not fair. But this is what the law says. And I can't, as a lawyer change the law to make you, you know, qualify. I, I can't. No one can, not just our firm, but no firm. And I, I hate to see lawyers having problems with clients when they've done a good job simply because the client thinks it's not fair. There's got to be a general understanding that the law is not fair, the legal process is not fair, okay? It is an attempt to persuade one or more people, a judge or a jury, that your facts are the right facts. And we do the best we can in, in the judiciary, on the local level, but, um, you know, we certainly, we understand how clients feel, and, and that's why we try to explain it to them and work with them. But I, I think that it would be better for individuals if they could learn 
a little bit more about how the law works. And that leads me back to what I opened the show with today, which is download our brand new app because the app allows you to ask questions. So when you have a question, before you go and, and you hire a lawyer, before you go and start research, researching things on your own, ask the question. You know, and that's also why we provide the educational videos on our YouTube channel, because an educated client, what was that commercial? I uh, can't remember what it was. Maybe it was Sims, Cy Sims. An educated consumer is our best customer. Remember that slogan? Well, well, it's true. It's true because an educated client who understands some of, of the issues that they'll face is better able to deal with a lot of the things that arise out of litigation. And that's why we have these videos. You know, they're not videos that are meant to um, convince you to hire us. They're informational videos. We want you to learn Right, and that's I think um, that's that's the difference with uh, with our channel I think over others because it's meant for educational purposes. It's not a sales pitch. Right, we get our clients because of our reputation and our work, um, but I think it it behooves us and it's it's sort of our social responsibility to give back to the community, to teach people, to you know debunk some of the oh, you can't do this because you're not an attorney nonsense, right? I like to equate myself to that magician that exposed all the secrets to uh, all the ancient magician tricks and all the other magicians were quite mad at him. Remember that show that was on TV? I thought that show was fascinating. And, uh, you know, I'm sure the guy made a lot of money out of doing it, but uh, I don't think that he did it simply for the money. So... I like to think of myself as that secret magician exposing the secrets so that you can handle certain matters yourself and you can get a better understanding of the law. So please, for your own sake, go download the app, check out the YouTube channel, subscribe so that you're updated on a weekly basis with all of our programs. Um, you know, Ask questions, post comments. I think it's really important that people realize that lawyers are approachable, right? At least lawyers at this farm, we're approachable. You can ask us a question, you're going to get an answer. So don't, don't hesitate, don't be afraid. You know, just, just quickly, we're running out of time, but I just want to say we got a call the other day from someone who was afraid to ask a lawyer and now has a really good case and really I feel so sorry for this person, but they waited so long that now the statute of limitations has run. So don't do it. Ask. All right, I just want to remind you that on April 7th, which is Monday, we have a special guest, uh, Ms. Yukari uh, Watani, I think it's Kanye or, or Kane, I'm sorry for butchering your last name. We'll be speaking with her about her book, Haunted Empire, Apple After Steve Jobs. Uh, she is a former Wall Street journalist, so we're going to have a lot of questions for her. It's going to be a very interesting show. In the meantime, questions, give us a call, 973-949-3770. Email info at peterlamontesq.com. You can also post it on Facebook, on Twitter. You can post it on Google+. Subscribe on YouTube. We'll get your questions, and we will answer them. So I want to thank you for tuning in today. I want to remind you, 
that there's power in understanding the law.